Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to pick up in a few moments in verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 4. Should I marry or remain single? Before I, I really get into that too much, I want to remind us that God has a purpose for each of our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2 when he says to the church of God at Corinth. Then he says to those who have been sanctified saints by calling. Hagiazo. That means that we have been set apart unto God by his grace. By the cleansing of his blood. By the indwelling of his spirit. We have been put in a class all by ourselves. And we have been given an eternal purpose in him. As long as our heart beats we have a purpose. We don't retire, we just refire. Now we discover that he has a design for us. We're his now, bought with a price. We're not our own as believers. And it is in his word that we discover that design. In 2 Timothy rather, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, and you know the verse, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. I love that word. It never means materialistically profiting. It means spiritually profitable for teaching to put us on track, for reproof to show us when we get off track, for correction to get us back on track, and for training in righteousness to keep us on track. And then he says in verse 17, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If I have a purpose unto him, if I'm set apart for his design, I find that design in his word. And the word of God becomes like a spiritual refrigerator in my life. It's the blueprint that we live our lives by. You see, Jesus is no longer in the cradle. And Jesus is not on the cross. Jesus wears a crown, has a name above every name, and he is Lord. And as we live up under his lordship, out of his word, in his design, then we have 10,000 joys to speak about. Furthermore, it is his grace that enables us to do what he's commanded us to do. Not only does Jesus sit at the right hand of the Father, he sent his spirit to live in you and I. And his spirit lives in us to enable us to do what we couldn't do otherwise. Verse 16 of chapter three of Ephesians says that he would grant you, Paul praying, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power, ability that you don't have apart from his dwelling in you. Strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. How do I do that? Verse 17 says, I learned to accommodate him in my heart through my faith that Christ may dwell in your hearts 
through your faith. As I learn to obey him, obey his word, I become a part of a design that he has for me. I begin to live in the purpose that I now have as a person sanctified and set apart by his grace. Now this whole process begins individually and the first people that are affected by it are our families. That's the first one. We always think of evangelism as out there, but I believe it starts in here. And when I, as a person, as a believer, begin to live in God's grace according to his purpose and his design, when I begin to live that way, when my wife begins to live that way, the first people that are affected are one another and our families. And then it moves from inside circles out to the reference of the people that are around us. Have you ever noticed that when holidays come, Christmas time, Easter, the saddest people around are Christians? And you know why? Because everybody is celebrating this season outwardly, but few Christians are celebrating him inwardly by surrendering to who he is, by surrendering to his purpose and to his design. It all starts in the family. I think it's by absolutely no accident we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, right where we are at this particular season of the year. Absolutely no accident. Because to the degree I can celebrate him on Christmas Day is to the degree I'm celebrating him daily in my life as I live set apart unto him about the purpose that he has for me. Remember, the word, whether it be your family, your finances, your future, or whatever it is, is God's design. And if I'm not going to live out of his word and celebrate him by my willingness to obey him, then I'm not going to be able to celebrate him on the outside when the time and the appropriate time comes. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians 7, as I said. The last time together we were in verses 2 and 3. We're in the terrible, corrupt city of Corinth, remember. And Paul is writing believers who have probably just thrown in the towel. And they said there's such an immoral society around us, it is probably even better not even to touch a woman. And Paul takes that phrase and writes it back to them. We don't know the questions that they ask. We're not real sure if that's a statement they were saying at that time, but we do know it's Paul's answer because that's verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. They wrote him a letter and asked him several questions. We don't have the letter. We don't have the questions. But Paul picks up on that phrase, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And we realize that could not in any way infer a marriage relationship. Never for a husband and for a wife. And evidently, the only thing I can get from this is, their question had gotten, is this sexual intimacy wrong even in marriage? I mean, they had just lopped it all into one category and made it all wrong. And Paul says, what? What are you doing? And he's trying to take marriage and its fidelity and put it back in the proper dimension that God himself has put it into. Now, the last time we saw it's very important to make a definition between sexual immorality in the world and, and sexual intimacy, which is proper and by the design of God in marriage. In verse 2, he says, but because of immoralities. You see, if you don't make the difference between what is immoral and what is the, the proper sexual intimacy in marriage, you cannot in any way incorporate the two together. It, it, what happens is parents, perhaps because of a promiscuous life in their past, they don't want their children to grow up like them, and so they make it look so bad that even that child, when he gets married one day, doesn't even want to, doesn't even want to look forward to that beautiful intimacy God has designed for him in his purpose for marriage. He just puts it all in the same category and has a warped 
way of thinking, but you must make a definition between them. Immoralities that Paul talks about has nothing to do with the sexual intimacy, the beauty of what God has given to marriage. But then secondly, we realize that marriage is God's own plan to protect and defend his people against immorality. Now, escaping the immoralities of the world is never a reason to get married. Somebody says, hey, it's better to get married than burn and lust, you know. And now you're kidding. That, those kind of marriages never last. That's all on a horizontal plane here, and, and it won't work. They will not work. Physical attraction is never the only reason for a person to marry another person. However, having said that, once a person is married, marriage in itself becomes a defense system against immorality. The two work together because both have flesh and both have temptations, but God has set up a plan. God has a design. I'm telling you, it's beautiful if we'll just do it God's way. He says in verse 2, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife. He have to. It's the word that means treat her as if she's part of yourself. Man, it wouldn't be amazing if husbands would treat their wives as if they were part of themselves. They might spend as much on the wife as they do that new rifle that they want for Christmas. It's incredible if we'd just treat our wives like we treat ourselves because they're part of us. And then he says, and let each woman have her own husband, idios. It's a different word. It means you're my very own man and I'm going to live my life letting you know that nobody can fill your shoes, big boy, because I love you and my focus is just on you. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every man knew that his wife lived that way? I mean, if you two of you work that way, hey, God has a design. <laughs> this didn't come off of Oprah. This, this is God's design. I mean, you're not going to find it on Phil's show and those kind of things. This comes out of God's word. God's idea is marriage. and Marriage is God's idea, rather. And therefore, he has the design for it. If they live that way, it takes on a brand new meaning. I love the song that was sung a while ago, 10,000 Joys. Man, listen, do it God's way and discover what the song means. Then the third thing is when the marriage couple determine to work out God's plan. In other words, they're going to protect each other. In verse 3 it says that the husband fulfill his duty to the wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now that's New American Standard. The King James adds a word that really helps the verse beautifully. It comes right out of the Textus Receptus. It's the word Receptus. <laughs> Textus Receptus. That's the, the, the text that the King James comes out of. Sometimes my mind and my mouth don't work quite in sync. <laughs> but he's talking about here that there's a duty that you have to one another. The word there means we owe a debt. You ever thought of yourself as a debtor? And the context is sexual intimacy in marriage. <laughs> and I owe a debt to my wife to fulfill her and she owes a debt to me to fulfill me. But you don't do it as a mechanical thing. That's why the King James Version throws in the word benevolence because there's a goodwill. There's, this is God's grace working now. When you choose to do it God's way, God not only wills, but, but He works within you. And He's the one creating that goodwill. It's God in you, fulfilling the design He has for you. And so it's not something you just do mechanically, but it's something God will, will produce within your heart as you choose to follow the design that He has for you. You see, in the world, the norm is to gratify yourself. This is what throws everybody's idea of what sexual intimacy and marriage off. How, what can I get out of it? No, no. God's design is the gratification of the other person, never the gratification of yourself. Well, that's what he's saying here as he says that we owe a debt to one another, not just in that area, but specifically and contextually in that area. 
Well, verse 4 is where we enter into today. It says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, let's look and see what's added to what we already know of a design that God has for us in his word. First of all, we see a willingness on on both parts to surrender one's rights to their own bodies. Now, this design is going to work. Verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4 go together. It's a package here. And if it's going to work, there has to be the attitude on both parts of a willingness to surrender their own rights to their own body. And verse 3, the verbs are in imperative mood. We've already looked at verse 3, but they're in the imperative mood. When it says, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. We added, of course, the benevolent. But in verse 4, it's different. It's in the present tense. Now, this suggests that this attitude is already there by choice. In other words, mutually, they already have this attitude towards one another. This is the whole plan working. This is the design like it's supposed to be. In verse 2 and 3 of chapter 7, the man was addressed first. But here, Paul, in verse 4, begins with the woman. Now, to understand this, they even begin to understand how in the world can I say that you, you, you own my body and I own yours? I, I don't have the rights to my body. You don't have the rights to yours. How, how could you even begin to think that way? Well, you have to go back to where it all got started. Go back to Genesis, if you will, chapter 2. And let's just find out why Paul says what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. Is this something off the wall? Or does this have something to do with God's original design? Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And while you're turning... I had somebody ask me this past week, how in the world do you preach verse by verse all the time? And I told him, sometimes very difficult to do what I do because you can't plan what the next verse is or what season of the year it might fall on. (laughs) But you just go as the text allows it to go. And that's what we're doing. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Notice this. (laughs) Then the Lord God said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm just going to throw in a Wayneism here. I, it just kills me when I read this because man is so stupid he didn't even know what was good for him. It was God who looked down and said, it's not good for man to be alone. Man didn't come up with the idea. God did. That's how, men, that's exactly how much intelligence we have. We don't even know what we need. God looked down and said, I do. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, from the very beginning, that's God's idea. You remember, he didn't create Adam and Eve, but Adam, or Adam and Steve is Adam and Eve. And so he has a helpmate for him. And this involves the sexual side of it and everything else. Everything's there. God designed this. Matter of fact, the word helper there in the Hebrew refers to one who perfectly matches the one to whom they're associated. Man stood apart from the animal world. And as God began to make the animals and Adam was naming them, that didn't work because they were not of the same. They would not have been a helper to him. So then he made a woman, which was exactly what man needed. Verse 19, and out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So out of all the creation, there was none that would be exactly match who he was. And he was created higher than the animals. 
Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. I thought that's another interesting phrase. God brought her to the man. Man would have never thought of it to start with and couldn't have found her if he was, she was out there. It was God who brought her to the man. Now, this helpmate, this helper, this exact match to man that, that God had ordered, and obviously for the replenishing of the earth and everything else, was involved in this, not only emotionally, spiritually, and, and spiritually, I mean, physically in every other way. But what, what happens here is he didn't make her out of his head where she could rule over him. And he didn't make her out of his feet where he could walk over her. He made her out of his side where they could be the two together. And then in verse 23, and the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I heard a guy preaching on this one time. He said, I think the Hebrew there means hot dog. No, but it means uh, she's part of me. She's part of me. She and me together make one. I'm incomplete without her. You see, it's the whole idea. Verse 24, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become what? One flesh. And without understanding this, you can't understand 1 Corinthians 7 when Paul says, you don't have a right over your body and she doesn't have a right over hers. You're part of each other. You're as much mine as I am yours, etc. It's a, it's a mutual attitude one has of selflessness and willingness to surrender the rights to their own body to the other. They understand God's design in marriage. I heard about a fellow that didn't like this and so he decided to create another story. He didn't like his wife, she burned his toast and so he said, hey, that's not the way it was. He said, one day God came to Adam and said, Adam, I'm going to make a perfect helper for you and, and told him all the things that would happen in that. And, and Adam said back, back to God, God, what's that going to cost me? He said, an arm and a leg. He said, oh man, do you have anything for a rib? But that's not the way the story goes. <laughs> that's told about a man who's not pleased with what he has, thinking there was something better. No, no, no. The story is, as recorded in scripture, she's the perfect, perfect match for man. And only God could come up with it. Only God could do that. He created man, knew the needs of man, therefore he created woman. And the two are a perfect match for each other. But the two of them together, a covenant word here, become one flesh. Now go back to 1 Corinthians 7 and see if we can't better understand what Paul is saying here. If she's part of me and I'm part of her, then I have no rights to me and she has no rights to herself or her body. And therefore, when it comes to the area of sexual intimacy, there is a mutual willingness to surrender the rights one's has for their own body. In verse 4, 1 Corinthians 7, it says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The word authority is the word exousia, and it means the right and the might that comes in a relationship of something. In other words, one doesn't dominate his own flesh in the sense of he's willing to surrender that. In marriage, they've been made one. Each has authority over the other's body. When it comes to the area, particularly, of sexual intimacy. In other words, they do not have the right to deny the other when it comes to sexual satisfaction. That's interesting, isn't it? Either by refusing them or by only gratifying themselves. No, sir, that is not their right. 
their own bodies, not their right when it comes to this type of intimacy in marriage. Now you must connect the other two verses or it just doesn't make a lot of sense. In verse 2 he says, but because of immoralities. Then he says, let each man have his own wife as part of himself, which is exactly what he's saying here. And then he says, each woman have her wife have her own husband, her very own. And then in verse 3, let the husband fulfill his duty. All of this is in the context now of sexual intimacy in marriage. And then he says, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The husband is to take the initiative because he's the first one addressed in verse 2 and verse 3. And the wife responds to him taking that initiative. This works because neither one has the attitude of saying, I have a right to do this or that. I have a right to, to not to if I don't want to. And, and the other, both of them have that mutual selflessness here and willingness to surrender their own rights. And again, if you take out verses 2 and 3 and just read verse 4, as some people do, then you come up with all kinds of things. You, you even can possibly end up with abusive relationships in marriage where a man walks in and says, I have a right over your body, etc. And I want to tell you something, folks. A man that abuses a woman in a marriage relationship is anathema as far as God's concerned. And by that I mean just totally condemned in the sense of what God would say he did. Now, he's a, he's a Christian. He's not condemned because you can't lose your salvation. But as far as God is concerned, buddy, that is never to even be breathed or mentioned in a marital relationship amongst believers. Never. I tell you what, and it makes me angry that a man would abuse a woman in any way. To me, that's the biggest coward that ever walked the face of this earth that would utter any kind of abuse upon someone who God says is actually a part of himself. So let's remember some of these things as we walk through this. He's simply saying when it's done God's way, it's going to work the way God says it's going to walk. But all these attitudes have to be there, verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. Now in verse 4, or verse 5 rather, the first four words make it clear what he's saying. He says in verse 5 of chapter 7, stop depriving one another. The word deprive is translated defraud in the King James Version. It's the word aposterio, and it means to deprive someone of something that belongs to them. When you defraud somebody, you deprive someone of what belongs to them. The tense of the verb is present, indicative, active. And this, this, this suggests a lot of things. It suggests to me that in Corinth, they were doing this, and probably because of what we said earlier. Out of that immoral thinking, they came out of that kind of culture, and they just said, hey, all sex is bad, and it's wrong even for a man to touch a woman. And you see, evidently, they were depriving one another. This was causing all kinds of problems. They didn't realize it's working against them instead of for them. Well, the context is sexual intimacy, and it's clear here that Paul says, don't stop depriving one another. You see, by depriving the other, by taking rights over your own body, what you are doing is you're opening the door not only for yourself but for that other marriage partner to start coveting someone else. Remember it says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife, etc. And those commandments are broken when we stop doing it God's way. When one deprives the other. It is, and by the way, this just shows you something else too. That sexual intimacy in marriage is not just for procreation, which a lot of people say, oh, just for having children. That's the only time God would sanction that kind of thing. That's the kind of mentality some people grow up with. Oh, no. It's for the mutual enjoyment continuously of the marriage partners. God designed it that way. And it's okay. It's right if it's done the way God says it ought to be done.
Well, we see clearly that in verse 1 when he says it's good for a man not to touch a woman, he couldn't have anything to do with. The question could have nothing to do with a husband and his wife. That's Because everything we're reading here involves the physical, sexual intimacy of a husband and a wife. You see, God has a beautiful design for marriage. It's based upon mutual love, verse 2. It's based upon mutual respect in verse 3. And it's based upon mutual selflessness in verse 4. But it all begins when each married partner surrenders their rights to their own body. They're not going to defraud the other. They're not going to deprive the other. You know, many times this is used to get back at somebody. Okay, you can sleep on the couch tonight. I want to tell you something, friend. That is working against what you want in your marriage relationship. God says you stop depriving one another. No man has a right over his own body, and the wife does not have a right over her own body. So there's an attitude here. Verse 2, 3, and 4 begin to be clear. Well, secondly, not only should there be a willingness to surrender one's rights to their own bodies, but secondly, there needs to be a willingness to surrender the desire for sexual intimacy. There are times for this. You know, it's funny. Having said all that we just said, there are times when there is a time of restraint, and he speaks of that. There are few but he speaks of it even in the nation of Israel when God was going to come down off Mount Sinai and speak to the people. If you'll go back and study that passage, they said they were to abstain from any kind of physical relationships. They were to prepare themselves with fasting and prayer. It was a time when this was not going on. But you can't find that but one or two times in the whole nation of Israel for the whole Old Testament. So you're not talking about many times here. But there are those times of restraint in the, the marriage relationship when it comes to sexual intimacy. He says in verse 5, stop depriving one another. We looked at that. Except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now that word agreement is a very important word. The word agreement is the word symphonos. I guess you can figure out what word we get from that. It's when two things work mutually together to, to make happen what perfectly can happen when only both cooperate. That's what that's talking about there. Uh, there's no desire of one that is imposed upon the other. Both are equally agreed and therefore the harmony can come out of that. That's what the word agree, agreement means. So in other words, if, if one says it's right, but my wife is not very spiritual, she doesn't think, uh-uh. Not until they're in perfect agreement can this work the way God says it ought to work. He says, stop depriving one another except for a time that you devote yourselves to prayer. The word for time is not the word chronos. There are two words for time. This is a chronometer. This is something that measures time. He's not talking about how long. He doesn't say anything about that. He uses the word kairos, and kairos is the word that has to do with opportunity. Uh, it could be translated season. Every year at the, tri uh, at the opportune time, fall comes in, then winter, then spring. Well, like it, it's the idea of opportunity. So it's an opportunity for both partners to do something. So in this agreement, they've got to be mutually consented together and for an opportunity that God has put before them that each might participate. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now the word devote just caught my attention. It's the word scolazo. Guess what word we get from that? We get the word school from that word. Now, what in the world does he mean, devote? And what do you mean, scalazo? Well, when a person goes to school, it's supposed to be that he's free from physical labor, although I always looked at school as physical labor. I liked school. I just hated class. You know, I just hated teachers that have tests and stuff like that. 
But the word means you're free from physical labor so that you can come to a place of relaxation and you are able then to grow and to learn. That's kind of the idea. You're put into an environment, a relaxed environment, environment where you can learn. So the couple refraining as a mutual consent from sexual intimacy to put themselves into an environment to where something can be learned and, and they can grow in something and something can be answered perhaps if they're seeking an answer to a question. Because he goes on to say, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now, the Texas Receptus adds another word there, and fasting. And I think that probably needs to go along with this. And New American Standard leaves it out. It's not in the Nestle's text. But the word prayer and fasting, you know, listen to me. Fasting is never anything that makes you or me spiritual. I don't know why in the world we think that is. Jesus tried to show the Pharisees that, but we don't even pay attention to that in the 20th century. Fasting is the environment into which you put prayer. And prayer is your invoking God that you might get in on whatever God is up to. And so therefore, fasting just simply makes you more aware and more sensitive to what God may be saying. Now, in this particular situation here, the, the word yourselves is used and that's in the plural. And that's important. It's not just the man walking in and saying, nope, not tonight, not for a while. I'm fasting, I'm praying, and you get right and get spiritual. Hey, folks, that's not it. But it's, a, it, it's the couple coming together. They're under severe spiritual oppression or they're, they're under a burden. And what normally can be discerned from the word as you pray cannot seem to be discerned. And so they, they come together and mutually agree that either both of them or at least one of them, but they're mostly both agreed, would, would, would go into fasting and prayer and both would be consented to that and therefore they would push aside sexual intimacy. By the way, that doesn't necessarily mean when you're fasting and praying that you do away with that sexual intimacy. That doing away with it has to be a mutual consent on both parts. You can still effectively fast and pray and participate in the marital relationship. You can still do that. Why in the world people say everything has got to be a certain way? I don't know, but that's not what he's saying here. The key is the mutual consent. That is the key. It's not the man saying, I'm the only one spiritual in my household, and so wife, you do what I tell you to do. That's ridiculous. It's, it's a mutual consent. Well, and these, this is not the only, or these aren't the only two reasons either. You say, well, Wayne, that's all he says here. Do you not believe the word of God is inerrant and infallible? <laughs> yes, I do. But use your head. What about sickness? What about when someone's pregnant? What about when there's absence in the family, somebody travels or whatever else? There are other reasons, folks. But remember, the mutual consent still needs to be there on both of them. And Paul brings out prayer and fasting probably because in all these other endeavors, that is also something that can be considered. But the mutual consent, there's got to be a, a willingness at times to surrender even your desire for sexual intimacy for the benefit of, what will, of one or both, you see. And it's a mutual thing. It's a mutual thing. And I'll tell you, from what I know in Scripture, it's a very rare thing. You see, a lot of times people use an excuse from sexual intimacy for a spiritual reason when it's really not a spiritual reason. It's a warped view of what that is to begin with. And see, they never let you know that. 
but they want to be the goody two-shoes and act as if they're more spiritual than you are, and that's what ruins marital relationships. I mean, you say, well, Wayne, this hasn't got a thing to do with Christmas. I wish you'd preach on something else. You don't think it doesn't? You want to start lining up and naming the couples that have no sexual intimacy in their marriage and have no oneness and have no attitude of caring towards one another and the mutual love for each other that are trying to go through this Christmas season as miserable as anybody you have ever seen in your life because they're not being about what God says they ought to be about in their marriage relationship. I'm telling you, folks, this is where the praise comes out. We know we sing praises in our church, and I love to sing praise. What I say with my mouth means absolutely zero. But how I live, backing up what I have just sung, means everything. And it starts in my family. It starts with Diana, my wife. It starts with her, with me. And then it moves to our children. And then it moves out. And I'll tell you what, when you're one together as married, married husband and wife, the way God designed it, Absolutely perfect for one another in the sense that you complete each other. There is no more joy than you can have to celebrate Christ when it comes time outwardly. Because you're celebrating Him inwardly every day. Well, the third thing that we have here we want to look at this morning is there must be a willingness to surrender to God's plan so that Satan can be defeated. That's the last thing I want you to see in these verses we're looking at today. You have to understand that we're all weak and Satan knows that. And Satan does have a plan to destroy marriages and we think it's out there somewhere. I was in a city not long ago and they said, you know what we're doing, Wayne? I said, what you doing? He said, we're getting committees together and we're finding out where Satan's working in this city. And we're going to go and surround those areas and we're going to pray down his power and we're going to break his bondage. And I thought to myself, you don't have to go out there to find out where he's working. Just go home and shut the door. You'll find out where he's working. And if you get yourself right with God, get your marriage right with God, you've just built in a protection that Satan and all the demons of hell can't even begin to stop. What's wrong with us, folks? We'd rather go out there and fight the devil than we would die to self, which is our submission to God and our resistance to the devil, and go on and live the way God says. The devil's going to do only what God allows him to do to begin with. Let's, let's, let's back off this principle that if we don't pray, then, then, then God can't do anything. God's going to do what he does whether we pray or not, folks. And the devil is on a leash. <laughs> you hear that, devil? When I looked over here, I didn't mean to look at the people. <laughs> look at verse 5. <laughs> Stop depriving one another. <laughs> except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now that word come together again uh, is, is a good word. It, it refers to the sexual union between marriage partners. The word seen together, erkame, which means to come, to come together with someone. It's in the present, middle, and passive. In other words, if you look at both of those views, you make your own choice to come together after this particular period of time of restraint is over. And not only that, you let the fact that Satan can tempt you be a, something that causes you to come back together. That's both middle and passive meaning there. The word for Satan is interesting to me. There's several words for the devil, the, the fallen angel in Scripture. you got the devil, you have Beelzebub, other words. But this word Satan is the word that means adversary. It is his system in this world, the thinking of the world around you, etc., 
that is totally an adversary to anything that God says. You see, he's already ta tattooed us with the flesh. That's his mark he left on us. And it's ad it totally against that which God wants for our lives. He is out to get us and knows our weakness better than we know it. He's already set traps for us. If you don't believe that, you stop honoring what God says in his design in marriage and you open your eyes, friend, they're all around you. Now, by, God's, by Paul's bringing Satan up, we must conclude from this that our flesh is very weak. That's one of the first things he's trying to tell you. <laughs> now, anybody who thinks they can whip Satan on their own is a fool. And our flesh is weak and is totally addicted to sin. We need to remember that. Our flesh hadn't stopped being addicted. Now, the power of sin has been broken because God has moved in. But if we're not going to do what God tells us to do, what's going to happen is we forget that the Satan came out there to tempt us and he says we don't have the control that we need, the self-control that we need. We cannot conquer our flesh by ourselves. The last phrase in verse 5 says lack of self-control in the New American Standard is one word in the Greek. It's akrasia. And it's the word that means with, without uh, any power, lack of power over self, lack of power whatsoever. In Matthew 23, verse 25, he uses this word. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. And that's, a, that's the same word there. Self-indulgence means you don't have any control over the flesh whatsoever. Now I want to say something. If, if there's a wife here today and you've got a vendetta against that husband because he bought that rifle and you told him not to buy it, and you're going to stop him, buddy, by depriving him from any sexual intimacy whatsoever because he did what you didn't want him to do. What you have just done without realizing is you have handed him over to Satan's temptations on a platter. And the more you deprive him, the more that man cannot in his own power overcome the flesh. Only by grace do we overcome. Victory is Jesus overcoming us, you see. Not us overcoming sin. We can't overcome sin. God overcomes us. And if he doesn't keep his walk right, then what you have done, even though he's the one doing all the stuff and getting the blame for it, you set the stage for it by your own action to go against the design that God had for your life. Well, listen, if God's word tells us that both marriage partners are not to deprive one another, to mutually surrender to one another, then God's grace will enable you to fulfill that. Failure to do what God says immediately puts you in a trap already set. Your flesh is too weak to stand it. The satanic temptation within one's heart is where it starts, right? Within one's heart. When one marriage partner without mutual consent says to the other, no, when it comes to sexual intimacy. And the road to destruction has begun. I remind you of Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. That you might be strengthened in the inner man. And I'll tell you, folks, this is the principle of being under grace. It says in Galatians, he that is led by the Spirit is not under the law. In other words, when you're led by the Spirit of God, he'll lead you right to the Word. And then he'll encourage and strengthen you to do whatever the Word tells you to do. And if you're going to walk that way, then that's living under grace. And God will give you the desire. God will give you the want to when it's needed. God will give everything that's necessary there. However, we've got to be willing to do it God's way. Our weapons are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful. And so when something happens that irritates us, we don't take it out on the other partner by stop doing what God says we need to do. So a willingness to surrender one's rights to their own bodies, a willingness to surrender one's desire for sexual intimacy, a willingness to surrender to God's plan so that Satan might be defeated, 
that's needed for God's protective plan, his defense system against immorality to continue to operate the way God intended for it to operate. And I could say it as simply as I know how to say it. Just read the directions. <laughs> if God's idea is marriage and God has a plan for marriage and if you'll do it God's way. You see, in Corinth, they didn't, they didn't have any marriages they could look at to say, hey, that's the way you do it. And so Paul has to come in and say, hey, some of you start living the way God tells you to live. Quit thinking like the world around you thinks and become an example so that others might see from your life how to do it. It doesn't matter who's doing it around you. It's what are you doing? Are you living the design that God has? But if we'll just read the directions. <laughs> it's amazing how the Bible is a wonderful commentary on the problems we have on marriage. You know, years ago, Christmas time came, and that was back when I discovered I was Santa Claus, and so that was a terrible day. And I, and I bought <laughs> a big wheel for Stephen. One of those, you remember those big wheels? I don't even know if they have them anymore. They've got motorized cars now, but back then they had the big wheels that you pedal, and they had the big old, had little streamers hanging down from the handlebars, and oh, that was a good looking little thing. I just wish it had bigger so I could have ridden it. <laughs> and we had a big box, and it had parts running everywhere. <laughs> And Diana said, are you going to read the directions because I know you. And I said, oh, no, 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 it's simple. Anybody can put this together. <laughs> and I took the directions, flipped it over, typical man. And I began to put the thing together. Well, when I finished and I put those cap nuts, you know those little cap nuts that go on the outside? You have to drive them on. But the reason you drive them on is because you don't ever want to take them off again. Because if you ever take them off again, you can never drive them back on like you did the first time because they're going to be loose. And I put, I said, and I'm looking around, I don't see anything. So I <laughs> hammered on those cap nuts and I was so proud of my work. And I pushed that big wheel out across the floor. <laughs> it looked like a crippled duck. I mean, <laughs> and I thought, uh-oh, I'm in big trouble. And I started looking around. Now listen, laying up under the directions <laughs> were four little red sleeves. You know, those round things that you're supposed to put <laughs> between the wheel and the body of the thing. So it'll keep the wheel, it'll keep it from going. That's what it's supposed to be for. <coughs> and I thought to myself, oh no, I'm going to have to take the cap nuts back off. Screwdriver, boom, 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 boom. Took the wheels off, put the little sleeves back on, put the wheels back on it. And when, you, when I put that cap nut on the second time, I, I realized immediately, oh, I'm in trouble. Because it didn't go on tight like it did the first time. Well, Christmas Day came and kids were so excited and Stephen got his big wheel. He'd been wanting one. It was green like a frog color, you know. And he had yellow, yellow on it. You know, and he gets outside in the yard and I'm so proud and I got my camera and he starts riding. He hadn't gone 10 feet and the wheels go boom. <laughs> and Stephen starts crying and crying. And I thought, oh no. And Dinah said, oh, Wayne, look, it's a, it's, this must be a, 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 a defect in it or something. I'm thinking. <laughs> 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 I, didn't want to, I didn't want to tell her I didn't read the direction. And you know what? It was snowing that year. And every time that he would go out with the big wheel, I had to finally get some orange fluorescent paint and paint the cap nuts that color so I could find them because they kept falling off so many times. And it was like, finally, I could hear the Lord saying in my thick skull, hey, big boy, beanhead, read the directions. It's incredible. If we would just do the way God says to do our marriage relationships, the 10,000 joys that we could speak of 
that God would give to us. And I want to tell you something. For all the young people that are a little nervous with me preaching on this area, I want to tell you something. Relax. The only reason you're nervous is because you grew up in a sex-oriented society and even to hear the word makes you a little nervous around your parents. But young people, I want to tell you something. You keep yourself pure till one day God brings the right mate in your life. And you do it God's way. And I want to tell you something. That sexual intimacy that you think the world says is so bad and God says is so good it will be the greatest relationship physically you can ever have on the face of this earth if you'll do it God's way. Amen. Stop being afraid of the word when you mention it. It puts us back into the Corinthian culture that all sex must be bad. Listen, friend, outside of God's will in marriage, it's awful, not just bad. Inside that marriage bond, it's a beautiful thing. 10,000 joys when you do it God's way. Celebrating Him inwardly gives me reason to celebrate Him outwardly. He's everything He says that He is. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.